We're glad you're joining us this morning as we continue in this series of sermons on 1 John. Today we're looking at the first half of chapter 2 of 1 John. and We're going to read that together and then we're going to try and unpack it because it can be a little bit challenging to try and figure out exactly what John's saying in there. So let's read together. It's 1 John chapter 2, the first 12 verses. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments, is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. But at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let's pray for God to help us understand that this morning as we begin to unpack it. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this book. It's short. It's fairly simple, but it has so much depth to it. And we pray, God, that this morning you would help us to understand it. Help us to grasp a little more of what you're saying to us, what you were saying to the church that John was writing to. And what you're saying to us this morning. Father God, reveal yourself to us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you ever ask yourself the question, why are you here on earth? Maybe, what is the meaning of life? And maybe you just kind of respond real quickly, man, that's a little too philosophical for this early in the morning. You know, we look back on the 60s, which I just missed, um, as that time when the hippies dropped out and they were trying to find themselves. They were looking for the meaning of life. The whole theme was drop out, tune in, turn on, and we don't do it quite the same way anymore. That was then and this is now. And Yet I wonder if we don't all ask ourselves the question at some point, what is the meaning of life? Why am I here? What should I do with my life? And I think the only way to answer that question is to answer another question, a prior question. How do we understand life? And what that really means is that we're trying to understand the big story of of why everything exists and why we're here. And I want to suggest to you that over uh, history, we've had different versions of the answer to 
what is the story we find ourselves in? If you're from the majority world, so you're from Africa, Asia, South America, um, you were taught by your culture that you're part of a larger whole. Your identity is found in the family or the clan or the tribe, but that that extended group that you're part of. And you're here to support that extended group. You're here to bring honor and never shame upon that extended group. And you're to remain within that group until you die. Those of us from the Western world, uh, well, our story is about individual rights and freedoms. That's the centerpiece of the story that we find ourselves in. Our culture tells us that we have individual rights and freedoms. We should go to school, get a good job, become wealthy, die rich. It's all about us. And if we'd have read a little further in that chapter in 1 John, in verse 15, he says this, Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, that's not from the Father. It's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Maybe you're kind of thinking, well, I'm not sure, Dale, that those stories are quite as uh, diverse as you think they are. Maybe you think I'm exaggerating a little bit, but let's just think back on the news of this past week. We've watched the news, and we've seen this response to this COVID crisis that's going on. And I see it especially in the U.S., but it's not that different in Canada. We're seeing the response, I have my rights. You can't close me in or you can't close me out, whatever it is we're trying to do to them. My comfort and my financial stability is the most important thing because... It's all about me. Now, at the risk of popping a few heads off this morning, um, it's interesting to me that the people who are the most pro-life, the ones who at conception will tell a pregnant woman that life is more important than her comfort or her finances, when it comes to the COVID crisis, it's some of these same people that are saying, my comfort and my finances are more important than a few older people who are just going to die anyway. I heard a politician on the radio this week say this. The average age of a COVID death is 83. The average life expectancy is 82. It's time to move on. So that's the two stories that I think are kind of current today in lots of ways. We have this uh, non-Western story of of being together. We have this Western story of individualism. But when John wrote this letter to the churches that were around Ephesus, they saw themselves in a different story again. And a quick parenthesis, how do you kind of figure this out? Um, if you want to understand New Testament letters in the Bible, just remember that each of them was written to a specific church because of a specific problem that the writer was trying to solve. We just finished Galatians. You can go back and uh, watch that on the web if you want. And that letter was written, as you recall, because teachers came into the church and said, the story we are in is that God has sent Jesus Christ as he promised, and now our job is to keep the Old Testament law. We please God by obeying the law, by getting circumcised, by eating kosher, by staying away from unclean people, 
And that was the story in their region in A.D. 50, when that letter was written. But now this letter is written to a different set of churches about 40 years later. And things have changed. There's a, there's a new story that is forming the backdrop of how people understand their lives. These churches are roughly the same ones that John will write to in the book of Revelation. You know, those seven churches at the beginning. Uh, the map that uh, you see kind of shows you where they are in Turkey. And uh, the important thing about that is you can see just across the sea is Greece, the heart of philosophy. And that is going to shape the story that these churches find themselves in. Because these churches are influenced by Greek thought, not Jewish thought. They're not concerned about what they should be doing because the story they understand about the world is that matter is either not important or perhaps even evil. And knowledge is all that counts. It's not what you do that matters. It's what you believe or what you know. And God wants to illumine you, to bring you into the light of his knowledge, out of the darkness of ignorance. So all that matters is that you know and believe the right things. And I'm hoping you're hearing some echoes of that passage we read, because those words are in there all over the place. So Galatians was written to say it's not all about keeping the law and being circumcised. First John was written to say there's more to the Christian life than what I know or what I believe. And I think one of the reasons that reading these two letters is so important for us is I think those two stories clatter around in our heads. Because of this, we tend to go one way or the other over time. Sometimes uh, we're, we're more concerned about what is it that we're trying to do? How do we please God? But it's what we must do. We must read the Bible. We must pray. We must go to church. We must, we must, we must. Or else we say at other times, no, no, a true Christian is someone who knows the Bible, believes the right truths about God. It's faith in God and right beliefs that matter. And in this letter, John simply says, both of those are wrong. And maybe that's a problem. Maybe you're saying to me this morning, well, it doesn't matter what I do. You mean I can dance, play cards, and chew tobacco at the same time? Sin isn't important. All those holy habits you keep talking about me doing are just not really all that important. Or, or others of you are saying, what? I don't have to believe in right and wrong. It, it doesn't matter that Jesus came and died and rose again if I believe that or don't believe that. I don't have to believe somebody else's statement of faith that I can just kind of pick and choose what I want to believe? Yeah, okay. Maybe I wasn't quite clear. What John tells us is it's not just what we do, and it's not just what we believe. It's both and. And I know you're surprised to hear that phrase. But when we only stress one half of it, we fall into heresy. Because heresy is not believing something that's wrong. Heresy is believing only half of a truth. So the, the teachers came into these churches around Ephesus, and they were the start of a belief system that will plague the church for the next couple of hundred years. And maybe actually all the way till today. It'll be called Gnosticism, 
and it's the early version of it, and they had three key beliefs. And as I give them to you, maybe just think, do we see these in our church? Do I see these in my life today? First belief, uh, Gnosticism comes from the word for knowledge, because these people believe that knowledge and understanding was all that mattered. You were either in the light of knowledge or you were in the dark of ignorance. And it was all about knowledge. And the reason knowledge was so important, secondly, was that matter was either unimportant or perhaps it was even evil. The important thing is the spiritual and the mental. That's where knowledge is found. And the third thing is the result of that is simply that the body is not important. It just carries our brain and our spirit around for a while but the sooner we're rid of this thing, the better. Some people today call that brain on a stick and got a cartoon that kind of talks about that. But if the brain is all that matters, then what we do doesn't matter. The physical doesn't matter. Our body doesn't matter. So sex, well, that's body. That doesn't matter. Uh, eat what you want. There is no such thing as gluttony because the body doesn't matter. There's no obligation to love someone or do something for someone because if you're not giving them ideas, well, everything else doesn't really matter. So we don't have to worry about the starving. We don't worry about the refugee. We don't worry about the oppressed. What's important is that we believe and think the right things. And it's into that story that John writes this letter. And if we don't understand that background, we don't understand the letter. You know, an interesting thing is just to count up the words that John uses. Which ones does he use the most? Well, if you count up the verbs that John uses in this letter, here are the ones that you're going to hear the most. To love, to know, to abide, to hear and obey, and to do and work. And already you can see that this letter is going a different direction than this idea that it's just simply knowledge to the exclusion of everything else. And I just kind of wonder that maybe one of the reasons we need to read this letter is because we love knowledge in the church today. I mean, I don't know a church that doesn't have a statement of faith on their website or somewhere that they will give to you. But a statement of practice, that may be a little harder to find. Maybe we need a second set based on, well, let's say Matthew 25. Jesus said, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Hmm. I'm imagining that you might be saying, is that really what John's saying? Well, let's take a look. That passage we read starts with John reminding us that our relationship to God is actually neither based on what we know nor what we do. It's actually based on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It started this way. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin or will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, 
and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And here what, what John's saying, if you follow along with that, is that we have an advocate that Jesus came to be our advocate. And the word there in the Greek is paraclete, which some of you will know is used of the Holy Spirit in, uh, in the Gospel of John. But here he uses it of Jesus. And the word paraclete is a word that in his time meant a person who was like a legal aid lawyer, maybe, someone who would come with you to court and would speak on your behalf to the judge. Someone who would sort of come as an intermediary, uh, an intercessor, whatever. Um, and, and, and John says that's what Jesus is. He's our advocate. And then he says, and he does that by being a propitiation for our sins. Now, I'm willing to bet that you've gone maybe three, maybe four days already without using the word propitiation with one of your workmates or one of your neighbors. Uh, but another form of the word, the original word in the Greek, is what they use for the sacrifices of the Old Testament. And that's what John's really talking about. He's saying that Jesus has become our sacrifice. He's died in our place. He's paid the penalty for our sin. And because of that, he can advocate for us. He can intercede with God. He can say to God, this is someone I died for. I've paid the penalty for their sin. You can forgive them. It's what Paul in Romans says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died and more than that, who was raised. And he is at the right hand of God who is indeed interceding for us. He's our advocate with the judge. Now, the false teachers of John's day more or less believed that. It's where they went from there that caused the problem. They would say, yes, that's all true, but if our relationship to God is because of Jesus and his death and resurrection, that means if you just understand that and believe that, you're good to go. You don't need to do anything. It's about knowledge and belief. It's not about doing stuff. And it's here where John said, no, 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 hang about, hang about, hang about. Uh, in the very next verse, which you can take, I think, to be the summary of the whole chapter, John says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. In other words, knowledge and belief must lead to action. Now, not action in the sense of Old Testament law, keeping that circumcision kosher thing of the Galatians, but rather in three consecutive parallel sections, John is going to spell this out for us. And it's going to have whoever says in it, as uh, what is it that uh, makes us have this relationship with God? Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And then he says, by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. And then the third one, whoever says he is in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. 
But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now John is going to go on in the rest of the letter to kind of flesh this out. And we've got many more weeks to explore all this. But maybe this morning, just try to summarize and figure out where John is taking us. Maybe just flipping over to James's letter is a good place to go. And in James 2, he says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Oh, go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving them the things required for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And what James is saying is it's not just about knowledge and belief, as these Gnostic teachers would say. And so John writes to these churches, and he's reminding them of the truth that how we live is as important as what we believe. In fact, he will say, it is the proof that we believe at all. Because by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. So here's the question at the end of all this. What story are you in? What story are we in? Is it the story of Western rugged individualism? You know, the, the Alberta story where it's only our beliefs that matter and it's all about us and it's all personal. Is it the majority world story where it's our identity is found in the extended family. Is it the, the Judaizers story in, in the Galatian church, which says it's all about keeping rules and obeying laws? Or is it the Gnostic story in John's church is that it's all about thinking and belief, this brain on a stick, if you want. And John's trying to say, no, we find ourselves in a Different story again. By this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commands. And John just says, you know, it's about knowing and about doing. It's about believing and it's about acting on that belief. If we know him, we will keep his commands. And you just kind of wonder, well, what commands is he actually thinking about? What are the commands? And I would think he's going back. Because he says, you know, it's an old commandment that you've heard before. It's new in some ways. But I think he's thinking back to a situation that he was present at when Jesus was on earth. A lawyer came up and asked Jesus a question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the first and greatest. But the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, believe, but do. Know, but act. As we close out this morning, just what did that look like? Well, maybe it's about caring. Maybe caring for the oppressed. Maybe you saw this week, you know, the news was full, especially come out of the U.S., of the story of the death of George Floyd. 
and uh, uh, the riots that have happened since then and all that stuff. And knowing every story has nuance and details, it, it's hard not to believe that that is not a story of oppression in some way. There is just this wide sense sense that injustice doesn't just happen in other parts of the world. It happens here in Canada. We have our own stories of violence and oppression. How do we care for the oppressed and the hurting in this world, in our own country? What are we doing? What are we praying for? It's care for the oppressed, but it's, it's care for the poor. Uh, this week we were praying for our Indian pastors. Their churches were affected by the cyclone in India. We're praying for that area, the Bay of Bengal. And we're hearing stories as well about how the COVID crisis is affecting food security all over the world, from Africa to the Middle East to Asia, that food security is going to be a huge issue. There's going to be starving people in all sections of the world. And we support the Food Grains Bank heavily because we believe that they are a great way of bringing both immediate relief but also development to these areas. But what are we doing in that area? What are we praying for? And then just this idea of care for others. In this time of COVID, we see people losing jobs, their income being cut back, and how do we share resources to help each other? You know, we do the, the food hampers, and you can bring food Mondays from 10 to 12 or Thursdays from 4 to 6. And we've done 57 or 58 of those hampers already, and, and we'll do more. But how do we use our freedom to social distance, to wear masks, to protect the most vulnerable of society, not just the elderly, but people like people in our own church whose health has been compromised by their treatment or by their illness. What are we doing? Who are we praying for? And John says the story we find ourselves in has very practical implications. The story we find ourselves in is this idea that God has come and in coming has called us to be his hands and his feet and his heart in this world. And the question comes to us, what are we doing? Who are we praying for? And in the end of that section in Matthew that we read, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Or as John said to us, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Father God, this morning we come and we confess that often our, our understanding of our relationship with you is just very, very limited. It's either about what we do or it's 
about what we believe. It's about rules we keep. Or it's about beliefs that we have. And Father, this morning you have expanded our thoughts. That it's part of our care for the world. That shows that we have this relationship with you because you love the world so much that you would give your only son. That whoever believed in him would have eternal life. So, Father, we pray, give us concern for your world. Father, for those who are oppressed today, for those who are oppressed by their governments, for those who are oppressed by evil, for those who are oppressed by good that has gone wrong, Father, we pray, may your justice come. May right prevail. Father, we pray for those who don't have, for those who don't have food, for those who don't have enough money to pay bills, for those who don't have love and relationships, for those who don't have security, for those who don't have this morning, for the poor among us, we pray, O oh God. Father, we pray as well that you would teach us to care, teach us to love as you loved, Teach us, Lord, that it's not just our rights and freedoms, but it's for the good of society that we live. Help us, Lord, to know how to walk that balance of caring for others around us. Father, we thank you that you loved us enough that you would send Jesus to be our propitiation, our sacrifice, that you would love us enough that Jesus would become our advocate, that he would come and present his sacrifice to you that we can have this relationship with you. Father, thank you that we can have this personal relationship with you. Father, may we enjoy that. And may we see it lived out in our actions this week. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.